If you wouldn't mind standing with me for the reading of the word. I'm going to read tonight out of Acts chapter 5, verse 17 through 26. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate, and all the people of Israel, all the senate of all the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the door. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these things, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. All right. How's everybody doing tonight? You guys enjoy this amazing weather? Yeah? Did do something fun and outdoors? Yeah? Yeah, good. We Yesterday, me and the older three kids rode Levi's Grand Fondo. Uh, Elijah rode 80 miles. It was a big ride. Um, but I was just struck by how beautiful our county is, guys. Like, we, I don't know if you guys realize, like, thousands of people come to ride this ride from all over the state, all over the country, to ride in what we get to call our backyard. It's pretty amazing. Thank God we live here. It's amazing. A um, couple more announcements, just things that are going on. Uh, it didn't make it actually in the newsletter this week, so you might not have known. But some of us, and you all are welcome, will be hanging out afterwards, kind of bring your own meal. Um, we're going to do this throughout the summer, once a month, a little less structured than a family feast where we all eat together. Um, but just... Enjoy the outdoors, enjoy the, the playground, and a simple picnic. So if you brought a meal or if you want to go grab something and come back after the gathering, after the service, feel free um, and join us there. Also, a lot of 4 p.m. things here. We are beginning May 7th. We are going to shift the service start time to 4 p.m. You guys know that we actually, we say we start at 4 p.m., but we actually start at like 4.15-ish. Yeah. That was actually intentional originally, but uh, trying to give us time to be together, have coffee together, 
But uh, I think it's going to serve us well. We're going to move starting at 4 p.m. That's going to affect those of you who set up and tear down or in kids probably. So if you serve on a team, just be aware that we're going to start at 4. Also, that means if you're hanging out in the lobby at 4, 410, we're starting the service. So you, you'll hear uh, the worship leader calling you in and trying to get it going. Uh, last couple of weeks, I think Levi's gone out there, my son, and tried to wrangle some of you guys in. Maybe that works. We'll see. May 7th, so you get a week to keep it pretty lax, okay? And then after that, we'll start at 4, or we'll try. It's refuge time here. Uh, just want to, like, show hands. Who, who has, like, connected with their story and table groups? At least connected. Who's already, like, had a meal together or, or time together? Awesome. Cool. Yeah. Uh, I hope at this point, like, there's at least a text thread going on, and you guys are communicating. There's some, like, plans in the works at this point, hopefully, uh, and trying to find a way to make that happen. At least take that step. Make a text thread. Get something going. And I think that's going to be a really good time um, over the summer for us to just connect and uh, get to know people that maybe we don't know so well and um, also be collectively praying for our, our church community, for each other, and for the community. So a lot of prayer things, 4 p.m. prayer. Also, I'm just curious, who's, who's engaging with that? Who's, who's joining us at 4 p.m.? Good. Who at least has a reminder set in your... Good, yeah. You're not alone. We're all doing it. We're all doing it. It's good. Okay, we're going to jump into our passage. Last week, I kind of talked about this building tension that was developing and growing in this, this context of this growing movement of disciples and the religious establishment. Remember, I, I described it with an analogy of a concert venue. Anybody remember this? Remember, so the idea is imagine... I'm going to say it again because none of you guys nodded your heads. So, um, Imagine you manage a concert venue, one of the world-famous concert venues in New York or in Nashville or somewhere where it's a, it's a world-famous concert venue, and you're used to having the best acts in the world come and perform. You're used to having a big show regularly, and people come, and the, the press writes articles about you and, and your venue. And then one day, this group of street musicians starts to play on the steps as they enter, as people are entering into your venue. And these street musicians are just playing out front for free. And all of a sudden, people start to gather. They start to gather around these musicians, and crowds begin to grow, and night after night, they're there. And at some point, people seem to be more interested in these street musicians than they are with the act inside the venue. You can start to see the tension that would develop, right? They'd be calling the police, trying to get these street musicians off of their porch. That's a very similar scenario, contextually, to what's happening. I mean, it's a different stake, perhaps. We're not just talking about music. 
But the religious establishment was trying to figure out how to deal with this growing movement of these disciples of Jesus that were regularly meeting in the temple. They're regularly having their gatherings and they're teaching people in the temple. That kind of sets the stage for where we're at tonight. There's crowds of people that are coming to the temple, sometimes to the porches, uh, to hear the disciples teach, to receive healing, to receive miracles, things that we talked about last week. And this Jesus movement, this thing that they attempted to crush by crucifying Jesus, was now growing uncontrollably. They attempted to shut this thing down by crucifying the leader. And in every previous messianic movement, that worked. You crucify their leader, the thing shuts down. But something was different in this particular messianic movement. Just like with Jesus, there's healings, there's signs and wonders happening. Demon-possessed people are getting delivered. The, all the same stuff that was happening in the ministry and life of Jesus is now happening, but this time with lots of people. It's spreading. Needless to say, tensions are rising. The religious establishment, the, the high priest, the rest of the ruling authority. Our passage tonight says that the Sadducees and the rest are filled with jealousy. Jealousy. Jealousy, there's, there's two different types of jealousy. Even in the Greek, the background here is, some of your translations will say zealous. They were zealous or they were um, something like that. Jealousy could mean feeling or showing envy because of somebody's achievements or somebody's status. Or it could mean like a fierce, protective feeling over your rights and your possessions. Or zeal could mean showing great energy or enthusiasm. And I think... If you just take a surface look at the Sadducees and you put yourself kind of in their shoes, they probably thought they were having zeal. But in reality, they're pretty jealous for their own rights, their own privilege, their own power that had been established. Jealousy is probably the right word there. The high priests, the rest of the Sadducees are filled with jealousy. This is the ruling party in Jerusalem. It's not the same necessarily as the Pharisees that we saw Jesus deal with in most of the Gospels. The Sadducees were different. They had a particular problem with this Jesus movement. The Sadducees denied the resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees embraced the reality of a resurrection of the dead. They placed it firmly in the future, but they believed that God would raise the dead and could raise the dead. The Sadducees completely denied it. The Sadducees also denied the existence of spiritual beings, angels, demons. You can start to see some of the irony in this story. Is this 
people, these disciples of a resurrected Messiah, are thrown in jail by these people who don't believe in the resurrection, only to be freed from that jail by an angel that they don't believe in. You start to see some of the irony here? Let's look at this. Verse 17. The high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and they put them in public prison during the night. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. This is the first of three prison breaks that we will see in the book of Acts. Three times, all facilitated by God. God ordains these prison breaks. And it's an important theme as the book develops, these these, uh, liberations. But it's probably important also to point out that we don't just look at these stories of these prison breaks and we start to make doctrine out of them like, Well, when I find myself in a hard situation, I just pray and an angel shows up and I'm free. That's not exactly how it works because we know that Paul's going to spend two plus years in prison and not get freed. They all are going to end up getting martyred. In fact, later on in this story, they all get beat. They get ultimately the punishment that was coming for them. It just, just delayed slightly. So what's happening here? What's ultimately the point of this story? They're thrown in jail because the Sadducees and the high priest, the high priest's inner circle is jealous. They're feeling threatened of this growing movement which is centered on a resurrected Messiah and all the mystical, spiritual things that they don't agree with. The disciples, we know at least Peter, but it's plural, so probably lots of them, maybe all of them, are thrown in jail for the evening. And the Sadducees come back in the morning to deal with them. Meanwhile, an angel of the Lord shows up and sets them free. Verse 19, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go. Stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard it, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Notice, though, this is important. When they were set free, when they were removed from that prison, that that jail cell, uh, it wasn't just for freedom's sake. They didn't, like, go run off and hide. They didn't run away. They didn't hide. They still had a job to do. Nothing changed from the day before for these disciples of Jesus. They still had a job to do. In fact, now they had a direct charge from an angel of the Lord, a messenger that was sent by God to free them from this situation to continue their work. This angel charged them to go back to the temple, the same place that they were just arrested, the same place that they were just threatened, and to continue their work. Specifically, the command is to speak to all the people all the words of this life. All the words of this life. 
I spent all week thinking about that phrase. All the words of this life. This new thing that was developing, this Jesus movement, it's almost like the angel didn't quite have words to describe it. It's almost like he didn't quite know what to say when he's trying to describe it. It wasn't called Christianity for some time. Like, Acts chapter 11 is the first time that's even, that word's even used, Christian. That's probably sometime in the mid-40s, mid-80s, 40, probably 10 to 15 years after this story. When the movement at that point reached up north, then the Christians were called Messiah people, Christians. But before that, there were several names or phrases that were used to describe what God was doing in this, this community. I've, I've used a couple tonight. This, these disciples of Jesus, these, this Jesus movement, this Messiah movement. One of my favorites was uh, they were the people of the way. The people of the way. But here, it's almost as if the angel... He says to speak to the people all the words of this life. This life. It's almost as if the angel's pointing his finger at their life in particular and saying, you need to go and share all the things concerning this life that you now live. Not that life, not a life in general, not those people's life. This life that you're now living, go and share that. Go and speak the words of this life. Isn't that a strange way to put it? Grammatically, it's kind of strange. I think this is what the angel meant. What the apostles were doing, what this early movement was doing, was quite simply, it was living in entirely different way. Nobody had lived like this before. This was one of the most extraordinary challenges that pressed on people as the gospel took root all over the world is people had never tried to live like this. This was completely unique. It was a whole new way of life following Jesus People hadn't tried it. In fact, nobody had even imagined a life like this. Something completely different. So people of a resurrected Messiah. A people completely surrendered to the lordship of a king whose kingdom is not of this world. And here's the thing. It wasn't just a way of life in a sense of like a way of conducting your personal private life. It was that, but it was more than that. It was a way that involved living in this new community like a family. With people who shared your belief in this resurrected Messiah. It was a way that involved a radical new view of property and possession. Everything was seen from a different, more eternal perspective. 
The entire way they saw the world was shifted because of this resurrected king. But it was also particularly a unique way of viewing the temple and the Holy Land. This would develop further, but they would still worship in the temple. They would go there regularly and they would worship, they'd teach, they'd fellowship there. They'd still worship in the temple, but they would meet regularly for the center of their fellowship, the the center of their life before God was when they broke bread together in their home. This is completely different. No longer did you have to come make pilgrimage to a holy place. You are a holy place. And when you gather with other holy places and break bread, something holy is happening. This is, this is what's happening in this community. This is utterly different, this way of life. It was all of that, and yet it still was more. It was a completely new way of life in the sense that life itself had now come in quite a new way. Life itself had taken up residency inside of them. N.T. Wright says this, a force of life had broken through the normally absolute barrier of death and burst into the present world of decay and corruption as a new principle, a new possibility, a new power. They were filled with new life. They and we have the very Spirit of God taken up residency in us. That's why Paul says in Galatians, he says this, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, God who loved me and gave himself for me. So the angel says, go, speak the words of this life. Not the life of the age to come, this life. What is, what is happening in your life now? Go, speak the words of this life. I think it's important to point out, too, that this life, it had to be spoken, not just lived. We have a, a faith that's built around the preaching of the word and the written word the writing of the story. For sure, it, all of that had to be rooted in the reality of the way the apostles lived their life. The reality of how they did things, the works, the healings, all of that had to be there. But a wordless sign and wonder or a wordless lifestyle, it's left even though that's powerful, it's left up to like many opinions, a variety of explanations. But our faith from the beginning has been one not just of demonstration, but of word, of teaching. 
It demands to be explained and taught. The gospel has to be shared, not just lived. I know we've all heard that, like preach the gospel every day if necessary, use words. The problem is the gospel is words. It's good news. It has to be shared. We have to actually teach over and over again. It's still very much true today, if not more than it was in their day, that we have to regularly confront half-truths and false narratives. There's all sorts of things that fill our heads with partial truths, half-truths, utter lies. We believe whatever feels right, whatever the person that we like or trust tells us to believe. But our faith is one the gospel needs, it requires, it demands that we spell it out carefully, step by step, over and over, that we remind ourselves again and again of the story of who Jesus was and who he is of what God did through him, of how the long biblical story, the people of Israel and creation, how it all plays its part in this Jesus story, of what all of that meant in the long-awaited coming kingdom, of what it means for you and I now, and then the end of this, what then do we do? What does that mean for you and I now? How then shall we live? What now? Our faith demands that kind of telling. I think that's important in this story. It wasn't just go live and demonstrate signs and wonders without a proclamation of the truth. It demands a telling. That's why later on in this passage, when they're on trial, again, we can't help but speak of the things. That's actually earlier. We can't help but speak of the things we have seen and heard. Later on, they're going to say, who should we obey, you or God? The angel here didn't just get the apostles out of prison. They were given very specific divine instructions for an urgent task. Very specific instructions to go and tell the people. Tell the people the words of this life. It's almost like the angels, I don't even know what to call it. But whatever's happening here, you need to go share it. Go tell all the people what is happening. And this is, of course, in your face. It's directly in opposition to what the authorities wanted. And I don't think we should be surprised considering what had happened so far. The high priests, his families, his family, the Sadducees, They definitely would regard this as a threat to their status, their power, their importance. They would be jealous. That that makes sense. 
this present challenge, this, this thing that they're, the Sadducees are dealing with, it was a direct threat. They were charged as guardians of the temple, the holiest spot on the earth. In their mind, how could they simply allow these apostles to carry on with what they're doing? How could they simply allow them? God's honor could be compromised. Israel could be led astray. We know what happens when Israel's led astray. The Babylon thing, exile, remember that? So the authorities did their best to protect their jealous, their power, their their protection of what they saw as best. They had efficient jail. They had police force. They locked them up. I think it's important that one thing we will see throughout the rest of this book, there is no locked doors for the gospel. When God wants to break them out, it breaks out. Here's how the story plays out. The next morning... Starting in verse 21. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. They still don't know what had happened. They arrive in the morning and they send the guards to go bring them. But when the officers came, they did not find them in prison. They returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards still standing at the door. This was a miracle. Somehow they got out without the guard even knowing. When they opened it, when they opened it, they found no one inside. The captain of the temple and the chief priests heard this. They were greatly perplexed. about them, wondering what would come of this. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. I found it interesting that this narrative starts with them being jealous And it ends with them being afraid of the people. Also, Luke likes this word perplexed. Perplexed, wondering. This should remind you of multiple times in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came at, at Pentecost. That was the response of the people. They were perplexed, amazed, astonished. That's probably the right response here. God just did a miracle. Something happened that they cannot explain. And they're perplexed. They're wondering what would come of all this. One more thing I think we should address in this passage. Given the seemingly easy nature of this jailbreak and a few more that's going to happen in the next several chapters in Acts, it, it, it sort of begs a question. 
why would Paul sit in jail for two years? That's in Acts 24. That's probably a year away from now. Why would Paul sit in jail for two years when he wanted, he, he desired, he probably prayed regularly, he probably had groups of people praying for him that he would go to Rome, that he would continue his good work and his mission. And yet he sat in prison for two years. When God's clearly fully capable of just extracting him from there. Clearly fully capable of setting him free and continuing him on his mission. And the question is, if God is capable of liberating the disciples like he did here, but not just here, in Acts 12, he releases Peter from prison. In Acts 16, Paul gets released, Paul and Silas, remember the story of them singing? They get set free by an earthquake. Why would ultimately he leave Paul in prison so long? We don't know. I don't think you're supposed to know. I think that's part of the beauty of it. The takeaway for us from all of that, the takeaway for us is that the Lord has a purpose for whatever we find ourselves in. Whatever situation you find yourself in, he has a purpose. It was during those two years that Paul wrote many of the letters, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Paul penned these letters while in prison. We don't know. Perhaps God was like, the only way I'm going to get this guy to slow down long enough to write these letters is if we lock him up. We don't know. That's just me speaking arrogantly for God there. But perhaps... He was forced to sit in prison to write these letters so that we have them, the richness of theology and doctrine and practical instruction that we get from these epistles. Maybe we would have never had that if it wasn't for a crummy situation where Paul's left begging for a jacket and paper. Same could be said for Bonhoeffer. Many other saints throughout history that are left in crummy situations. We don't know what the Lord is doing. Sorry, this isn't the most, like, happy message. We don't know what the Lord is doing in your crappiest situation. We don't know. But he has a plan. His purposes are way beyond what you can see through them. The end game is bigger than where you feel. I think Paul's words here sum this up. In Philippians, he says this, Philippians 4, verse 11, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And here's the famous passage that we have on all our bumper stickers. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
contextually, maybe not so happy. Or again in 2 Corinthians, he says this. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insult, hardship, persecution, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We don't know. Who knows what God is doing through whatever situation you find yourself in today, last year, or next week. We don't know. Not that we don't pray that the Lord liberates us. I'm sure Paul was praying, God set me free. I want to go. I, let me out. I want to go preach. I'm sure he had people praying for him. Guess <laughs> Jesus in the garden, prayed, if it's possible, take this cup from me. We, we pray those kinds of prayers. But I don't think we hold God's, hold him to it and like get angry with him if he doesn't meet those prayers. We learn to be content. We learn to submit all of our life to the lordship and leadership of Jesus, which means sometimes carrying a cross. And following him. The key here is to be content, to be intentional, to be faithful, no matter what situation or circumstance you find yourself in. Continuing here with Paul, 2 Corinthians, he goes on imprisonments, countless beatings often near death. Five times I received by the hands of the Jews 49 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. One time I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I could go on. Paul is laying out this, his journey, toil, hardship, sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, often without food, cold in the cold and exposure. Apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. There's a pastor's heart. What do we do with this? I think this is the way of Jesus. We learn to be faithful and content. Whatever comes, wherever situation we're faced with. This is the way of discipleship. Sometimes there's a miracle and God shows up and you're liberated. Miraculous things happen. This happens in our community. God shows up and does incredible things. Praise God. We should tell those stories because it builds faith and encourages us to continue to pray even a year and six months into our prison. And yet sometimes we endure. Sometimes we endure. We set our face like flint towards the Lord, and we endure what's before us. We do it all for his glory and submission to his lordship and his leadership, because it is in that that we display the gospel. 
all the while we speak the words of this life. We tell the story, the whole narrative of who Jesus is, who he was, what God did through him, how everything built towards him and how he will restore all things. We tell that story over and over again. That is what we're about. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the examples before us of both the miracle and the endurance, of both the liberation and the patient suffering. God, that you have a plan and a purpose. God, I thank you that you see the beginning from the end, that you know exactly what you're doing, that you're not shocked or nervous or scared by our circumstances, by our situations. God, teach us to be faithful. Teach us to be patient, to be content. God, we want to be a people of the way. That we would practice the way of Jesus, which means sometimes enduring and sometimes seeing the miracle. Jesus, we love you and we trust you. You are a good shepherd. You are faithful to lead us and to guide us through the valley of death or to green pasture. You are faithful, and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.